Good morning, church. I want to know God more, do you? And isn't it wonderful that he's given us his precious word so that that desire to know him more is satisfied? What a gracious, wonderful gift that he has given us. This morning, we're continuing our sermon series on the life of Moses, and today we find ourselves in Exodus chapter 16. And although Moses is involved, we understand by this point he's not the main character. Really, these stories of Moses and Israel, they reveal the character of God. Really, all the scripture reveals the character of God. God is in the business of self-revelation. And if you're sitting here and you're listening to the word of God this morning, know that what's about to, to come, what's going to be explored in the scriptures, reveals who the infinite God of the universe is. We are studying the character of an awesome, infinite, almighty, and unchanging God. That, keep, keep that in mind as we open the word. Every time you open the word, we're not just reading history. These narratives are not just fairy tales. They're historical records of God interacting with humanity and revealing who he is. They're not relics of the past. They're invitations to understand the Lord Almighty and how he continues to interact with his people. And so this morning we are reading this historical account of God's interaction with his people in Exodus chapter 16. And we're going to learn... Uh, what God is like, so that we may trust in him and what has been revealed through the passage this morning. So if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 16. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 21. Holy Scripture says this, Then they set out for Elim, and all the congregation of the sons of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after their departure from the land of Egypt. The whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The sons of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather the day's portion every day, that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my instruction. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the sons of Israel, At evening you will know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt. In the morning you will see the glory of the Lord. For he hears your grumblings against the Lord, and what are we that you grumble against us? Moses said, This will happen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and bread to the, to the full in the morning. For the Lord hears your grumblings, which you grumble against him. And what are we? Your grumblings are not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumblings. It came about, as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the sons of Israel, that they looked towards the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, 
I have heard your grumblings of the sons of Israel. Speak to them, saying, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. So it came about at evening that the quails came up and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the layer of dew evaporated, behold, on the surface of the wilderness there was a fine flake-like thing, fine as a frost on the ground. When the sons of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it every man as much as he should eat. You shall take the omer apiece according to the number of persons each of you has in his tent. The sons of Israel did so, and some gathered much and some little. When they measured it with an omer, he who had gathered much had no excess, and he who had gathered little had no lack. Every man gathered as much as he should eat. Moses said to them, Let no man leave any of it until morning. But they did not listen to Moses, and some left part of it until morning, and it bred worms and became foul. And Moses was angry with them. They gathered it morning by morning, every man as much as he should eat. But when the sun grew hot, it would melt. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word, God, and we pray that you would indeed reveal who you are through it, Lord, that we would leave this place with a better knowledge and understanding of who you are and a greater love for you that leads us to a greater obedience and action in your kingdom. We pray that you would do this miracle now and that um, many would just come to know you truly through this word. In Christ's holy name, amen. So you all may be seated. So, so what is God revealing in this narrative? I believe the key to answer that question from, from this passage is found in verse 12. There the Lord is speaking, and he says, I have heard the grumblings of the sons of Israel. At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. The most important takeaway from today is that God wants you to have knowledge that he is your God. That word, your, indicates a direct association that God wants with you. God doesn't just want you to have an abstract knowledge, something far off about who he is. He wants a personal relationship with you. God is necessarily relational, by the way. It goes as deep as the Trinity itself, and he wants to invite you and I into that. That's, that's amazing. That he in his freedom and grace has chosen to identify with and relate to a people. In the Old Testament, it was specifically Israel. And now, friends, through Christ, you too are invited. He wants to be your God this morning. And this is good news. But what does this mean for the Lord to be my God? For him to be your God? How will he interact with me? What does it look like? What, what does he do that makes him different than other alleged gods? What is even appealing about this claim? I believe this passage in part reveals what exactly is entailed with God being our God personally. And in the narrative, I believe we see a God who in difficult times hears 
instructs, provides, and ultimately loves his chosen people. Today we'll see that the Lord is revealed as your God who hears you, instructs you, and provides for you. No other God does this. This is what it looks like when the Lord of the universe, the infinite God, is your God. These interactions should take place. And so there are really four features in the text, uh, in the passage, that show uh, what it means for God to be our God personally. The first, we're going to look at this idea that the Lord is your God in all of life's circumstances. Second, we'll see that the Lord your God uh, is your God by his hearing of you. Third, we'll see that the Lord is your God by his instructions to you. God also means ruler, doesn't it? And fourth, we'll see that the Lord is your God by his provisions for you. So let's look at this first uh, point here. The Lord is your God in all your life circumstances. Verse 1, it says, And they set out for Elim and all, or from Elim, and all the congregation of the sons of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after their departure from the land of Egypt. So God wants to take them from one place to Sinai. Remember that was what he said, I bring these people to Sinai to worship me. And then from there, they would worship and receive the law, and then they were to go to the promised land where they would flourish as God's people. He wants his people to grow into a flourishing, wonderful people. But to do that, they needed to leave not just Egypt, but they needed to leave Elim, which remember in Exodus 15, 20, uh, 27, the end of the chapter, it tells us had 12 springs and 70 date palms. The Lord provided for them. But they had to leave and now go through this wilderness of sin. And by the way, this, this name, wilderness of sin, it's more coincidental. Um, though they certainly did sin in the wilderness, it's not uh, particularly uh, named for that reason. So, they're several weeks out of Egypt, and instead of immediately flourishing in the promised land, there's a process of growth that is taking place in the wilderness. There's something that God is trying to reveal about himself and show how he interacts with his people. What it means when he is their God. And it involves a process in which they are temporarily led into an undesirable wilderness void of food and water. Indeed, when God is your God, when he is personally interacting with you and I, relating to us personally on this side of eternity, it's not all roses and butterflies all the time. Sometimes things might get tough when the Lord is your God. Sometimes things might get a little messy and uncomfortable. Sometimes we find ourselves in these wildernesses without food and we're lacking and we're grumbling. You know, we don't preach the prosperity gospel here. This is not your best life now. It's to come. And indeed, we should hope in that. But certainly, this is a wilderness. We're still waiting for the return of the Lord and that establishment of his perfect kingdom. And so sometimes we're in this process, this season of growth, and we're all going to find ourselves there. Sometimes we might not have a lot of money. Sometimes we might lose the job. Sometimes that loved one might pass away. Things in this life, friends, are difficult. I'm not going to stand up here and be delusional and tell you that nothing is difficult. Sometimes it is. But hear this, 
When the difficult times come, it is not a sign that he is not your God, but a sign that he is your God even through those hard times. That he reveals to you in those places his own faithfulness and his own love towards you. That is what it means when he is your God. It is perhaps in those times where he is most clearly showing us who he is. The God of the highs and the God of the lows. The God who follows us even into the wilderness and blesses us there in that place. And it it seems to me an infinite God who could have done anything, could have easily teleported the millions of Jews straight to the promised land, straight to Sinai, wherever he wanted to take them. But he didn't do that. Instead, he chose Moses to lead the people through the wilderness so that God may reveal to them that he is their God, even there in that place where it is undesirable. Not just the God of prosperity, but the God in the wilderness. Oh, that we have a God who is our God. Not just sometimes, but all times. Whatever it is you're going through this morning, friends, he still is your God if you would let him be. If you would embrace that fact and be at peace, friends. Every high and every low, he remains faithful to his people. He remains actively and relationally involved with his people, always, even in those spots. When he is your God, he is not just your God when we reach a destination. He is your God in the journey. And that is good news. Moreover, in the wilderness, he still, again, has his plan. He's still leading you to goodness. And, and he's still that faithful head over us. He doesn't just save Israel from Egypt and leave them on their own. He, he gives them instructions. He provides for them. He's with them in this dark place. He continues to reveal himself who, and who he is, even here in the wilderness. He values this process. And so, friends, we too must value this process if we are to learn anything from this text. But he is, he's looking to bless us, to reveal who he is, even in these places. That's what it means for the Lord to be your God. And certainly we will be tempted to grumble. In verse 2 it says, The whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the, the people grumble here. Notice that it says the whole congregation grumbled. This is widespread. This was sort of the default. Everybody was doing it, which probably justified it in a lot of people's eyes, I would imagine. But really, this is just a a logical fallacy. Just because everyone's doing it doesn't make it right, right? If everyone jumped off of a cliff, who hasn't said that to their child, (laughs) right? If everyone believes the world is flat, that doesn't make it flat, And so this heart of grumbling um, is so unjustified here, and we'll we'll look more at that later. But here, the whole nation really, I believe, is exhibiting a certain lack of trust in God. The one true infinite God who has chosen a people and is leading them to the promised land, and he's going to bless them, and he's blessing them even now by providing water for them in just the last chapter, right? He's proving who he is, that he is faithful, and they grumble because in that very moment, it's not their perfect vision of what ideal looks like. They have little to no faith, and instead of asking God normally, prayerfully, thankfully, with a totally different spirit to take, trusting that he's going to take care of them, 
it, because they've witnessed his great faithfulness in the past, they grumble, it says, and they grumble against Moses and Aaron. Verse 8 tells us that it's really against God. They just sang, think, think about this, they just sang a song of praise in Exodus 15. Israel and Moses, they sang this wonderful song, and things would have gone so much smoother if they kept singing. If they kept singing after... Uh, Leaving Elim, they were just blessed with water. They could have sang a new song. They could have meditated on his faithfulness to them. And that could have brought them through the wilderness. And it would have been probably much better for them. Learning these lessons that they are supposed to learn in the wilderness. This is why God has them there, I believe. But they chose again to grumble. And so God must teach them again. And, and that's okay. He's patient with his people. And their grumbling didn't mean God wouldn't provide. He certainly did. He provided in chapter 15 with the water, and he will provide in chapter 16, and he will provide in 17 and 18. He'll always provide. He is unchanging. The grumbling you see in the end is only indicative of a lack of peace that they could otherwise have had through trusting the Lord to be their God wherever they find themselves. And some of us are in tough spots. And the temptation is to grumble. But instead of grumbling, friends, recall his faithfulness. Maybe he provided for you in the past financially or had given you a special relationship with someone or led you to the right job or whatever. Think, think of his faithfulness to you. It says in Scripture to be continually thankful Thank him and praise him and know that he isn't just that past provider, but he's that provider for you always, friends. Even now, in this difficult time you may find yourself in, be at peace. Do not grumble, but instead be thankful that he is your God. It's, it's really easy to complain, but again, what I see in Scripture is a command to be continually thankful for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. And how much more thankful should we be that he has revealed himself through Christ? That we can, wherever we are, stop and meditate on the ultimate revealed fact, the main point in all of history, Christ and his work on the cross. We'll be meditating on that in eternity. That is the most powerful act that reveals who he is. And that is available for us in our growth. Sanctification and growing in Christ, by the way, is not unrelated to meditating on the gospel. But it's a deeper understanding, a deeper uh, meditation and mulling over that is where victory comes from, understanding the, the work that's already been done, that God became the God-man and died for our sins, resurrecting and giving us a hope of eternal life with him, a guarantee of eternal life with him. There is no need to grumble, friends. Oftentimes, too circumstantial grumbling, it's questioning God's goodwill for his people. Verse 3, the sons of Israel said to them, what that we would have died by the Lord's hands in the land of Egypt. So, so they complain and they say that God should have just killed us. In their anxiousness stemming from their lack of trust that God would provide, they entertain utter nonsense, saying that it would have been better to die than to be in this wilderness. 
And and look at what that grumbling implies. It implies that, that they believe that God doesn't like them, that God is not for them, that God hates them and doesn't know what he's even doing. It's pointing the finger at God here, that he is an awful leader who got it wrong, that God isn't faithful to take care of them. And they say the same way that, those, uh, that God killed those in Egypt, he should have just killed us too. And their reasoning is essentially because he doesn't feel like our God right now because they would do things differently. But friends, that misses the point. It misses the fact that God is revealing himself to be a faithful, covenantal God. He has chosen them as his people. He wouldn't kill kill them. He, He wants to serve them. He wants to bless them. He wants to be their God. And he is good to his people. He has brought them out of Egypt through a miracle of splitting the Red Sea. He destroyed the armies of Pharaoh. He provided water for them in Elim. And he is is faithful and he's unchangeable to that covenant, that promise he had made. And they, in their anxiety, say, we should have been killed in Egypt. This is absurd and it is totally unreasonable in light of the evidence that God has presented to them through past faithfulness, especially in light of all that God has done. This claim, it neglects all of what God has done for them already, what he has already revealed to them about who he is. And remember, this is only several weeks out, by the way, which kind of blows my mind. It makes me sometimes think of myself. You know, one week we're so happy, and the next we're making absurd claims just like this, aren't we? And so it's tough to really point the finger at Israel knowing that we often sound just as insane as they do here with their own grumblings. And as God takes us on our spiritual journeys of growth where we may know him deeper even in the wilderness, we often grumble in our own ways. God, this economy is awful and I don't own a house. What are you doing? God, I have so much stuff that I need to pay for and I'm financially overwhelmed. What are you doing? God, I'm single and I'm sad. What are you doing? I'm married and I'm miserable. What are you doing? Right? It's, we're just complainers. How could you allow that person to leave me? How could you allow them to die? What are you doing? And we might not say it out loud, but I think if we're honest with our grumblings that take place in our heart, We might say to God, you should have killed me rather than brought me to this wilderness. Oh, but this is just an indication, again, that we're pros of making mountains out of mohills, really. When we make much of the lack, when we make much of these circumstances, we make little of our God. When we make much of these trials, we fail to recognize that we should be making much of him who meets our every need in the trial. That he is our God. That we should be singing that song of salvation still, looking to him as the provider that he already displayed he was. And for the New Testament Christians, certainly again, we should be making much of Christ and his salvation work always. That is the cure to our grumblings. It is impossible to grumble and be thankful at the same time. Try it. (laughs) Your mind will get all confused 
impossible. And so we have so much to be thankful for with what has been revealed in Christ. And so, in light of the gospel work, how could we be grumbling? Be thankful always in Christ. Again, that is God's will. It is a centerpiece of all human history. Literally, the gospel guarantees an end that works out. Be happy for what he has done. Circumstantial grumblings are often from a delusional perspective that misses the point. It says, the sons of Israel said, what would we have died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out of the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And so the Egyptians failing to continuously, uh, excuse me, the Israelites failing to continuously mull over God's salvation and provision they start to have these sort of dreams, these deluded dreams and deluded perspectives that attach onto their grumbling. One commentator puts it this way. He says, the Israelites' mindset is not unlike that of criminals released from incarceration. Imprisonment, but with three meals a day and a place to lay one's head at night, seems more inviting than struggling through the challenges of liberty. The idea of security but outside the will of God seems preferable to insecurity and uncertainty but inside the will of God. They're thinking backwards, right? Their, their perspective is wrong. They're not understanding what they've been freed to. They are so obsessed with the familiar, so unwilling to have a faith-based relationship with their God. That is what they are saved to. That's what they were designed to have. They are so prone to stay away from that kind of faith-based relational thinking that instead they're clinging to the old and the familiar and looking at that as if it's better than walking with the Lord. They choose, again, only to see certain aspects of their slavery and fail to see it for what it really was. They weren't flourishing in Egypt. They were bound. Right? Where's the talk of the genocide that took place? Where's the talk of the hard labor? They will leave anything out in order to grumble against the Lord. Like a bad lawyer who chooses to ignore all the evidence against him, Israel chooses to focus only on the things that support their radically faithless claims against God. Oh, but what misery is this? In light of the unchangeable God who saves and provides, the God who brought them out of Egypt and provided water already, they are missing the big picture. They fail to see why God brought out his people in the first place. He brought them out so he could be their God. And so that they could be his people. He saved them to that faith-based relationship that they are trying to avoid. He is the covenantal God. He brought them out not to kill them, but for deep relationship with them. And that, friends, is true freedom. That is what he was saving them to. Why forsake true freedom and, and peace for three meals a day when you could just trust in God to take care of you? This is the new freedom that we have in Christ. It's, it's the, the question is this, the same for us. We too have been given freedom. Let us not look at the past so delusionally and forget the relationship that we're saved into, that he is your God, that he is my God. 
Part of being God's people, by the way, means being God's children. Adoption language, it's all over the New Testament. Friends, stop being anxious and letting that lead to grumbling. Trust God. Trust God and obey like a child. Don't delude yourself into thinking captivity is better. The reason we go there on our heads is because we're avoiding addressing the trust and faith problems that we so often have. Do not grumble. Be at peace and trust. That's what true freedom is. That is what we're saved into. That is what it means for the Lord to be your God. Even in the wilderness, we know he has bound himself to us for our good. And so we need not fret. Circumstantial grumblings against others is actually against God. We see verse 8, For the Lord hears your grumblings, which you grumble against him. And what are we? Your grumblings are not against us, but against the Lord. So they are so un-God-focused that they grumble against Moses and Aaron, kind of using them as a little buffer. They are so unaware of the Lord's sovereignty and leading over them in the situation and his power over all circumstances. They're so far off from seeing God as the good king who only brings good to his people that they begin to grumble. And interestingly, the grumbling is not even initially directed at God. It's directed at Moses and Aaron. It's directed at people, particularly leaders. And think about this. They're grumbling, but it's really for their own lack of faith and trust in God, and it's manifesting itself by attaching it on to people as a buffer, almost, between them and how they're really feeling about God's leadership. Oh, and we do this all the time, don't we? So easy to do. It's so easy to grumble against others instead of address this problem we have with God and pray through it and ask him and seek him and learn who he really is. We fail to see that God is our sovereign leader who brought us to that wilderness. And instead of making our needs known to him in a faith-based way and trusting him in relation, relationship, we grumble against others thinking that this is a good sort of buffer between us and the sovereign Lord. It's not. Verse 8 assures us it's not. All complaining against others is really just complaining against what the sovereign Lord has allowed in your life. Watch out for this. I see it all the time. I've participated in this, thinking all of my life circumstances is someone else's fault, and that me and God, we're cool. It's, It's a coping mechanism, a coping mechanism that we use all the time as a defense for our own lack of faith. And by the way, there is something to be said about leadership. They're pointing the finger at Moses and Aaron. Be very careful, friends, especially when we're talking about our leadership and our elders and those above us in church, family, whatever. They're humans, right? They're not fully sanctified. They're not God. And we can talk with them and give suggestions But the second we start blaming our wilderness on them, it's indicative that we are failing to trust God. And do not use that to cope, friends. It's just prolonging our misery. Go to the Lord instead. Watch what he'll do. The idea here, again, is grumbling against others is a human coping mechanism for a lack of trust in God. Don't be content dealing with just this horizontal level uh, and using that to avoid the vertical. Deal with that 
trust issue with the Lord. Pray to him. Open up the word. See stories of his past faithfulness, his character. Meditate on that. Meditate on the gospel and then be at peace, friends. Be healed by that gospel truth. Second is that the Lord is your God by hearing you. The Lord hears before you say a word to him. Verse 4, then the Lord said to Moses, behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. So, so all the people complain, and it doesn't say that Moses went to God and spoke and told God what happened. Rather, it says God spoke and explained his intentions to meet the needs even before Moses act, asked. Right? God knows. He's omniscient. He knows what's going on with his people. They're so concerned about food and water, and God already had a plan to feed them. God heard their cries even before Moses formally asked God for anything. God addresses Moses here, not vice versa. Then this is the God, again, who has covenantally bound himself to his people, already knowing their needs and intending to provide for them. Which shows, again, that that grumbling is very unwarranted. He, as their God, he already knew what they needed. It says in the New Testament, be anxious for nothing. He clothes the lilies. He feeds the birds. Matthew 6, 8, your father knows exactly what you need even before you ask him. And those who grew up in healthy families know what I mean, right? Waking up as like maybe that seven-year-old kid, you just wake up and you just know. You're not worrying about what, what to make for dinner. That's an adult thing right? Worrying about, oh, what am I going to do? I need to work and I need to provide for my family. God's the adult. That's the point. We're the children. Embrace that. You must be like a child to enter the kingdom of heaven. God's going to take care of you. Be anxious for nothing, friends, and be delighted in who he is as your, your God. That's what it means. Before we ask, he's planning. Friends, do we really believe that God, who who you know, at least theoretically, is all-powerful and all-knowing and all-good towards his, and he says, I'm going to choose you as my people. Do we really believe that? Because if we did, that peace should overwhelm us. We shouldn't be anxious. We shouldn't be grumblers. We can trust in him that he's our, our father who knows our needs. The world is so anxious and so depressed right now, isn't it? filled with grumblings and longings wherever you look. But for the saint who knows this God as their God, that, that we are bound to him and he is bound to us covenantally through his own free action, and that he's a God of honor, oh, the worry just sheds right off. Even in the wilderness, paradoxically, it's, it's in a wilderness, but paradoxically, it's a cakewalk with our God. The burden is light, is it not? The Lord hears when you grumble against both him and others. He hears the grumblings against the Lord. And what are we that you grumble against us? For the Lord hears your grumblings, which you grumble against him. Amazingly, again, part of God being our God means he is listening to everything. He listens to the good, well-intentioned prayers. We like to compartmentalize you know, like that's why they had this buffer of Moses and Aaron anyway. But God, he just knows. He knows our hearts. He knows our grumbling. He listens to the grumbling against others, the grumbling against 
against himself. When God is your God, he is not like idols with no ears and no hands that do nothing. He is a relational God that hears. And isn't that mind-blowing that even in their sin, he's showing how relational he is. That's amazing that he hears. He's not ignorant to our hearts. He's the infinite God of the whole universe who listens. And moreover, he listens to even the less than ideal, the faithless grumblings. He doesn't only incline his ear merely to eloquent prayers of praise sung from grateful hearts. He leans in attuned to our deepest selves. He's omniscient and nothing is hidden from his sight. Psalm 139 is a good thing to meditate here. If you have time to read that at home, we cannot hide our lack of trust behind barriers and delusional complaints about others. He sees through it all. When God is listening, he hears both the cry for help to meet the surface level need and in that cry, the true need, which is the lack of trust and relationship in our hearts. And so God answers both of these dual aspects of the grumble He feeds them. He's faithful. He'll take care of you, as verse 12 indicates. But he does so, as the text says, because he wants to show himself to be their God. Relationship. Not abstract. He's not far off. Trust him. He wanted wanted them, and he now wants you, too, to be at peace in these places in your life. He's listening. I pray you engage that. The Lord hears, and sometimes he repays your grumblings with his glory. Verse 7, and in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, for he hears your grumblings. They look towards the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared amidst their grumblings. God could have rightfully and justly gave Israel the smackdown, right? They totally could have gotten the smackdown here. How dishonoring to an infinite God of infinite resource who has made a vow to them for them not to trust him. Yet instead of destruction, instead of the old smackdown, instead of choosing a new people, we see God again continue with his faithfulness, continue with his faithfulness, and he blesses Israel by revealing his own glory to them. For us, we too have failed at times to trust in our God. And what has he done for us? He's given us Christ, right? In in Romans 1, it says, though he created everything, man did not thank him nor recognize him and instead worshiped and trusted in creation over the creator. But God in his grace repaid us through revealing his glory and sending the Son. The mystery is revealed. He has shown us his his full glory in the person of Jesus Christ. Even though we're sinners, he sent his son to die for our sins and resurrect as the ruler and heir over all creation. And he has bound us as the church to a special union with the son of glory. And he shares that glory with us. Though we are sinners, grace upon grace, every spiritual blessing, all glory is revealed in Christ. Friends, this is what it means for the Lord to be your God. He wants to be your God. He loves you. Would you consider this morning acknowledging the Lord's faithfulness to you through Christ and letting him love you into the kingdom? You can't earn it. Him being your God is an act of grace he has shown you, though you do not deserve it. 
I pray the Spirit would open all of our eyes to that great grace this morning and, and reveal that to everybody who hears, who hears this word. We see that the Lord uh, hears your grumblings and he wants you to draw near to him. Then Moses said to Aaron, say to all the congregation, the sons of Israel, come near before the Lord for he has heard your grumblings. A call to come near. God then, through Moses' instructions, beckons for the grumblers to come near. In, in every religion on the face of the earth, you have to fake it until you make it before you come near. You have to be good to get the blessing. It's the old carrot and stick approach. You have to earn the presence before God. Here God says, I have chosen my people. I will take you as my own, Exodus 6 he invites them close despite knowing their grumbling hearts. How much more this invitation for us in light of Christ. Though we have grumbled, though we have been selfish and lacking trust, he invites us to go near before him. And not only does he meet these physical needs as your God, he wants that relationship. He wants closeness. This is more, our God, the God of the Christian faith is more than just a magical genie, all right, who takes care of all of our physical needs. He is a relational God who wants a people for himself. A real relationship. And friend, the only way that we can come near is through the blood of Christ. Would you come near, though you are a grumbler, would you approach, I know it's scary to, to not hide from him because he is so great, but he doesn't want you to hide. He wants relationship. Hiding, that's old. That's Adam and Eve's response. He wants now you to go before him and have the grace of Christ wash over you and have real relationship. And friends, this is possible because of Christ, fully God, fully man. We can draw near into the holy of holies even closer than Israel because of the blood of Christ. Boldly, that's what it means for the Lord to be your God. The Lord hears grumblings, and yet he wants you to know him. Verse 11, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I have heard your grumblings of the sons of Israel. Speak to them, saying, you shall know that I am the Lord your God. The Lord hears the grumblings, provides the physical food in the form of manna and meat, and he does so again to show this point, that he is their God. He returns grumblings with blessings. He is the faithful covenantal provider, and he gives them food. He gives them manna. Now, what exactly is manna? Sweet tasting, right? Flake-like substance. Uh, most importantly, it's described as bread in verse 12. Bread from heaven given to the people which are less worthy to even receive it. And he gives this and provides for them that they may know him. God is not primarily interested with just surface level. He's interested with knowing, uh, having us know who he is with that relationship. Though we are tiny little specks on this planet, he provides bread. And all the more he has given us, John 6, the bread of life, which we feast upon in Christ Jesus. For our nourishment, that we may never go hungry again. Praise God, he wants to reveal himself to his people. He wants to take care of his people. He wants his people to know him relationally. And this is done fully through Christ. Next we see the Lord is your God by his instruction to you. 
Verse 4, then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather the day's portion every day, that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my instructions. Indeed, God isn't a God who leaves his selfish, grumbling people in that state. He wants spiritual growth. He wants development. He is trying to teach them. He, yes, he wants to provide for them, but he also wants to test our hearts and, and grow us in, in that relationship to show us our wickedness, to grow us into further relational trust that he so desires. Now, God is omniscient, right? God already knows the results of every test, doesn't he? Spoiler, they don't follow the instructions well all the time, Israel, do they? Yet he is willing to give them the instructions anyway because he's interested not in just physically providing for them, being our genie, but he's interested in the spiritual development of his people. That is why we're in the wilderness. They themselves are unaware of what's in their hearts. That is that lack of trust and that that God is cleaning it out in love through these commands. He is one in the the same act uh, providing for them and revealing who he is to them and revealing their own wicked ways. All in this act. Friends, take the instructions from God. Take that Bible that is sitting on your laps for what it is. God's instructions to test our obedience, to build our faith, to to instruct us, to show us where we lack. And, And by the way, this is not duty for duty's sake. This is not religion. These instructions aren't given so that we may approach God, so that we may learn, uh, you know, to... to, uh, earn something, right? It's not about earning. These instructions are given to us to build relational trust in who he is. That as we see the instructions, as we follow them, we have more evidence of his faithfulness, ever increasing. That Bible isn't something dull. It's not something not exciting. It's not a boring list. It's a relational thing. Oh, I pray that we would stop viewing this as just instructions to follow and instead viewing it as relationship with who he is. A delight. The law of the Lord, it's described in Scripture as a delight. I delight in his law. These testings aren't something to run away from. It's something to honestly embrace. The more you run away, actually, the more painful it is. The Lord's instructions also, we see, are not always static formulas or things that kind of stay the same in this boring kind of instructional magic genie way. Verse 5, it says, On the sixth day when they, prepare, uh, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So they are commanded to do the same thing every day, and then the Lord changes it up. And we know that on the sixth day, things start to look a little different. They cannot just continue the same old formula And as verse 22 indicates, on the sixth day they were to gather twice as much manna. Why? What is is this showing us? Why change it up, God? We had a good thing going here. Now this is interesting because it's contrasted, I think, with all the other days. On day one through five, they collect enough for that day. And if it was too much, it it rots and it gets worms if they try to save it. But on the sixth day, they gather twice as much, and then when they save it for the next day, for the seventh, for the Sabbath, it's fine. What is God trying to teach them? God is teaching them that our wisdom and our approach, which is often results-driven, that magic genie kind of formula, is not what's important. 
What, what God is concerned with and giving the instructions is, again, not just to feed them physically. He could have done that by just keeping the formula the same. Instead, he wants to reveal, again, dive deeper into relationship. Every rule in that, that book that you think is duty is relationship. God, through the complexity of his commands and the varying miraculous means of preserving on the sixth day and the seventh day, is trying to show them it's less about gathering in their wisdom, less about this physical result of the food, and more about trusting and recognizing the relational presence of the Lord in their lives. Would we see that this morning? We really like that one-size-fits-all approach. We like it in our business. We like it in all of our endeavors of success. We like lazy, static formulas that get us what we want. However, could it be that such a linear approach is actually indicative of our relational laziness and our hearts that really don't care to trust God much? We dread opening the Bible because it's so complicated, but friends, through these instructions, we learn who he is. We grow in faith. God's not looking for a lazy, static kind of lame relationship. He is looking for a robust relationship with different facets of obedience, different facets of his rule over us that, that are intricate and that are purposeful, right? God also knew what was best for them, that they needed rest. There's so much here. And, and it, all I'm saying is the instructions are not a curse. They're a blessing, friends, a beautiful relational blessing, promoting trust in God. I'm going to have to move along here. The Lord's instructions, always sufficient for your need, who had gathered, uh, he who had gathered had no excess and no lack. So this miracle happens in 17 and 18. When the people gathered too little or too much, it turned out that they ended up having just what they needed. A miraculous equalization of resource, ensuring each people had precisely the right amount for their sustenance. God knows what we need once again. God kept them, too, in this spot. By doing this, right, they, they gather too much, they gather too little. He's keeping them in a spot where it's no longer this genie to get things from. It's a person to trust in. He provided needs for them daily, and there was no lack. No lack. Friends, again, this Holy Scripture is not dead relics of the past. It's a description of your God. He makes sure we have no lack. But it's not at all apart from relational daily trust in him. Him doing a miracle every day for us. He wants to be that involved in your life. That no magic formula, no, no, no thing that we can do, no excess we can attain to prevent us from a continual trust. We sometimes collect too much, we sometimes collect too little. He, he makes sure it's good. Again, be like that child. Mom and dad, they got dinner, right? Don't worry about it. We also see that things don't go as planned when we don't obey the Lord's instructions. Moses said to them, let no, man leave until, uh, let no man leave any of it until morning, but they did not listen to Moses, and some left a part of it until morning, and it bred worms and became foul, and Moses was angry with them. The instructions were to gather a specific amount, an omer, about 2.1 quarts, and God miraculously made sure that that was the amount that was gathered. Then the instructions were to not save any of it for the next day, but to eat all of it that day. And when they did not and tried, you know, saving a little here and a little there, it, it really 
disobeyed, they were disobeying the instructions instead of relationally trusting God. When they started doing that, it went poorly, right? It bred worms and was foul. I can imagine it probably was pretty smelly. It's rotting and there's worms and it's gross. I'm not going to be eating that. Friends, it's always better to have relational trust in the instructions given by God than to do things our own way. Carefully follow the instructions the Lord has given, even if it means giving up that extra security in our earthly way of thinking. It goes against our, our I should say, I was going to say it goes against our best judgment. It goes against our worst judgment, really. And instead, trust him. He knows what he's doing. Follow the instructions. It makes a certain amount of you know, earthly sense to save for tomorrow. But when that is contrary to relational trust in God's specific instructions that he's given, it will breed worms. The general principle, again, for us, I don't think there's anything wrong with saving money or anything like that. That's not the point. The general principle for us is we must obey God's specific instructions and that relational trust in him must be primary, even when it kind of goes against the grain of our thinking. We see that the Lord's instructions to be obeyed every day by everyone. They gathered it morning by morning, every man, These instructions were not a one and done. God's relationship with us is not a one and done, right? So his instructions are not a one and done either. God's word isn't something that we sort of master and say, oh, I'll leave it behind. It's something that requires continual daily obedience. We need to go to that source morning by morning, obedience day by day. And and also notice that the kingdom of, of God, which is what it's going to look like in the end, God's kingdom, he's still ruling over us. He's probably still giving us instructions. The only difference is we're probably going to delight in them, right? We definitely will delight in them. So let's just start doing that now. He's, the, he's already brought some of the kingdom here. Jesus already came, right? We can already see this and start living in this now. And so every day we have this relationship. Every day, we get to follow the instructions, and he provides for us. It's a win-win here, friends. Don't be deceived by the tempter, by the enemy, who tries to tell you that this is not good, that the instructions are bad, and that you're just one and done, you know, no big deal. You get your, you rub your magic lamp, get what you want. No, continue in obedience daily. And it's universal here. That's noteworthy. The narrative doesn't exclude anyone. Every man participated in this daily gathering. It's inclusive. And it underscores, again, that God's rule, it applies to everyone. There are no exemptions, no special cases. Each individual is called to heed this guidance provided by God. No one is exempt from the instructions. Uh, Friends, again, this is what relationship with God looks like. Again, the kingdom of heaven, it needs a ruler a king who gives commands and sees his people flourish through them, heaven not void of instructions, probably filled with it. The difference, again, is that it's no longer a burden. Let's, let's try to live in that now and continually obey our Savior now, slave to righteousness. I'm always baffled at that language. Like He's, taught, he's, he's so Paul, the Apostle Paul, so free, and then he's like, I'm a slave to righteousness. He's like excited about it. We should be that excited too. Being a slave to righteousness, that's what we're freed to 
when God is our God. Okay, last, lastly here, the Lord is your God by his provision for you. Verse 6, so Moses and Aaron said to all the sons of Israel, so Moses and Aaron said to all the sons of Israel, at evening you will know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt. Interesting, right? It's a passage about grumbling for food, and now he's talking about Egypt, something like sort of in the past. I thought we were done with that. It's necessarily connected, right? This, this passage about grumbling about food is necessarily connected to the fact that God is revealing himself still as the redeemer of his people from Egypt. He is the great redeemer of the Israelites. They were slaves treated harshly, smacked down by the Egyptians from flourishing. And God destroyed the Egyptians and, and brought them out. And at face value, this seems almost unrelated to the grumbling about food. Yet here it is showing up in our text. Very interesting. Something that God has already done for his people. Something he has brought them out of already. Brought them out of Egypt. They already sang the song in Exodus 15. Yet they somehow do not know it in the way they ought to know it. And it has caused grumbling. And God is now still trying to show them that he is that same redeemer. Always for them. The narrative hints at the disconnect between the historical event of deliverance and the Israelites' personal appreciation and understanding of it. The phrase, you will know, it implies kind of this journey, deeper, experientially, more comprehensive into that deliverance. God is rehearsing with them once again that he is the God who redeemed them. He's revealing it still to them that they have a fuller understanding of salvation and redemption. And friends, for us, that mystery that has been kept hidden for generations is now disclosed to the Lord's people. It is Christ Jesus, the incarnate Lord, the, the keeper of the law, the redeemer of mankind, the ruler to be trusted, and the provider of salvation. This is our God. But when we're grumbling in our sanctification on the way, after the fact that we've sort of already understood, oh yeah, Jesus died for me. Meditate deeper on the gospel. Delight in the salvation he has given. He's still showing us facets after facets and angles of the gospel. Again, all through eternity, friends, I believe we will be delighting at the gospel. Rehearsing the gospel over and over in your mind. We never graduate from, from that redemption we never move past that salvation, ever. Even in the wilderness, delight in the redemption. Even in eternity, will delight in the redemption. And some might find this too easy, too simplistic. Wait, meditating on the gospel is a part of being you know, sanctified? I thought that was like something I had to do on my own. Too simplistic. You know, it's, they, don't, they don't like it. They say, oh, well, Jesus, you know, think about the gospel. It's an overused slogan. Lack psychological depth. You know, however, the power of the gospel lies precisely in its simplicity. God saves. God saves, and he is revealing that more and more to us every day. To say Jesus is the answer, it's not a worn phrase, but a declaration of a radical life transformation that is offered. It is the acknowledgement that the gospel isn't just a historical event or a theological concept. It is a pulsating force that shapes 
our lives and secures our future. It is a thing which we never graduate from. God taught the Israelites deeper and deeper revelation about who he is, how he saved them, and was their redeemer. He is their God. And likewise, in Christ, we are saved, and he is our God. And even this morning, he is trying to reveal a fuller depth of that simple gospel truth to us. Would you see it, friends? Would you stop your grumbling and know that he is the God who saves The truth that we are his and he is ours because of his work. Delight in that, brothers and sisters. We see the Lord's provision again reveals his glory to us. You'll see the glory of the Lord. Moses says this will happen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and bread to the full in the morning. Once again, the Lord's provision reveals this glory. He's acting in human history, providing for his people, for the meat and bread. And it's glorious. And friends, we need to think of the Lord's provisions again as the revelation of his glory to us, his actions in human history providing for us. It reveals who he is. We look around at our circumstances and anxiously say, I lack. But he, as that relational God, gives us food, water, water, clothing, salvation. It's all a display of his glory. Think about things you can praise him for. And if you run out, Think of more, because there is more. And there's always the gospel. We should delight in this. And I encourage you right now, meditate on this stuff. Meditate at home. Meditate on what you have, that you have a home. He has abundantly supplied for his people. And in doing so, he's revealing his glory to us. The Lord of abundance, lacking nothing. And he shares with us. He shares with us little specks on this earth. How amazing that he has revealed his glory and power to us in this way. And lastly, the Lord's provision, though unfamiliar to us, has been revealed. When the sons of Israel saw it, that is the manna, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is bread which the Lord has given for you to eat. God provided manna from heaven. It was a fine, flake-like thing, according to verse 14. They were not sure really what it was. You just wake up and see all this stuff on the ground. I wouldn't know if I would eat that without asking what it is either. It's new. It's unfamiliar. They didn't know, and so they asked, and Moses tells them, it is bread from God given for them to eat. God revealed this provision of bread to the Israelites who otherwise would not have known what it was. In fact, I think the word manna, even in the original language, has this element of like, what is it? What is it? They're given food. They have no clue what it is. And then Moses tells them, it's bread that God has given us. Eat it. It's good. Trust me. God gave it. And brothers and sisters, friends, do not miss the the true bread. Do not miss the provision that he has given. Do not miss the relationship with God. Indeed, he provides for us physically, but this points again to God providing for us spiritually. John 6, 35 and 36, then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Hear this. This is grace gospel church. Simple gospel. Ultimate revelation and provision from from God and everything in the universe, every trial, every provision, it all points to it. 
The gospel, it's the great historical revelation of God to mankind. Do not miss it. Don't look at it and say, well, what is it? And then walk away. I'm here to tell you that Jesus Christ is the Lord who created all things, and all things were created by him and for him, both visible and invisible, and he has revealed himself to us. Delight in it. Delight in that work that was done for you and feast upon it because he is our God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you now and we thank you so much for this word. We thank you that you are our God, that you've chosen us and that you have provided for us, instructed us, you hear us, you saved us. Oh Lord, I pray we would live in that truth, live in, in what it is you have for us right now here in this wilderness while we await your return. And Lord, we do pray, come quickly, come quickly. But Lord, while we wait, we wait with a smile on our face because we know the future that's guaranteed for us. So teach us to trust daily and to continue in this relationship that you've provided. We pray all of this in Christ's holy name. Amen.